Welcome to Leaders in Conversation, a series of podcasts in which leaders share their personal leadership stories to inspire and to encourage others. In this, the second episode in the second series of Leaders in Conversation, I'm delighted to welcome Bradley Pritchard, whose passions are to connect with people and community, to have an impact on future generations and to help people change their mindset to be more positive about what is possible. Bradley, welcome to Leaders in Conversation. Thank you very much for having me, Annie. I'm really, uh, I'm actually really excited to, to be on this. Bradley, I'm going to be asking you about where you were born and where you grew up and how these experiences and subsequent life experiences have shaped you in your leadership and how you created your passion and purpose for collaboration and community and your belief that we are not only better together, but together we can go further. Bradley, you were born and brought up in Harare, Zimbabwe for the first 10 years of your life before moving to the UK. Tell me a little bit about your life in Harare and what it was like having to move or choosing to move to the UK when you were age 10. Uh, I grew up with um, uh, my younger sister, Cassie, and my parents, um, we were very, I'd say we were privileged. We were, we were in a comfortable uh, life. I went to uh, St. Michael's School, for anyone who knows uh, the schools in Harare and Zimbabwe, and then I went to Hartman House. That's kind of the the process, really. You, you kind of go from well, St. Michael's, then um, Hartman House, and then St. George's. Th- those are the three schools that if you were... If you wanted to really develop within um, your your personal lives, that was the structure I think that a lot of uh, people would try and follow. So I was already uh, just continuing on that path. My dad worked uh, for University of Zimbabwe uh, as a quantity surveyor. Uh, he was a lecturer um, as well, and he was doing his PhD. My mom was a computer programmer. Like I say, we grew up quite comfortably. Um, life was as idyllic as a lot of people's um childhoods you know having the freedom to go out and play and and not really being tied down um then my dad in 95 uh he had an opportunity to travel to work in uh with south bank university and that was to complete his phd so we thought okay well we were gonna all move as a family for five years wait for my dad to finish his uh phd um, uh, become Dr. Pritchard, and then we'd move back to Zimbabwe. But this was at a time, you know, from 95 to 2000 was a time of uh, particular deterioration when it came to uh, the Zimbabwean uh, political system, economy. There were a lot of issues uh, with Mugabe uh, holding on to power. And as a result, the, the, the country destabilized m- massively. We then couldn't go back as a result of it. I think my, my folks decided for our safety, for our future, it was better for us to stay. Yeah, that's when we then changed course from thinking we were just visitors to thinking, okay, we're actually now going to be uh, permanent residents. And uh, So we stayed here ever since, obviously gone to visit family now and again. And actually a lot of my family have since left to either go live in South Africa, Australia, um, United States, um, Canada. Yeah, we've really spread. I think that that's that's the personal 
status of where we are. That's a huge change, uh, thinking as a family that you were coming to the UK for your father to complete his PhD and to work here for five years, to then find yourselves as a family realising that you would be staying here and not going back home. What was that like for you personally, Bradley? Well, I guess as a 10-year-old, you're not really thinking of anything else apart from your own interests. I was, yeah, I was, I really wasn't happy. I, I didn't want to leave. Uh, I'd established a really good friendship group and a way of life that I was happy with. And, you know, I, I didn't want to leave it. I was enjoying uh, my sport, uh, the friends, all these sort of things. But I even remember the day my, my Bob told me uh, because we were never really allowed snacks before dinner. But my mum actually, on, on this one particular occasion, she was like, look, okay, Bradley, we need to talk. So my, my sister and I were, were called over. We were sitting at the, the dining room table and uh, she brought us a, a plate of uh, of chips. I think it was like fish fingers and chips and tomato sauce. Like, if you know my mum, to do that as a snack was like, wait, hold on, what's going on? This was so out of the ordinary. Um, so she was like, hey, come here, have a seat and uh, make sure we were comfortable. And then told us, look, this is what's going to have to happen. Uh, you know, dad could either be in in the UK without us or we go with him. And, and we think it'll be good for us to stay together as a family. So because of that, we're going to leave. So I remember then just walking out and just going into the garden and having to think and having a little cry to myself and, you know, thinking, I don't want to do this. I don't want to move countries. I'm going to leave my friends and all these, all these sort of things. But yeah, um, as any kid, you, you kind of adapt. It took me a long time to to adapt. I think I always felt like an, an outsider, and I still feel like an outsider in at times. Um, but I've learned to embrace that 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 feeling of being an outsider, uh, rather than trying to conform uh, with, with an environment. Trying to appreciate my my differences and and turn them into into strengths. What would you? say to other people who are listening to this podcast Bradley that they could do to help them when they feel themselves to be an outsider I think as much as I'd love to give like um, a, a casual form of guidance when it comes to that it, it, it's totally uh, individual to, to that person to that person's circumstances to that, that, that person's character. I, I guess it's uh, very important to understand what that person is kind of going through first to say, okay, how do you celebrate difference? You know, it's, it's one thing to, to say, well, you know, just be happy being different, but it, it still doesn't get rid of that vulnerability, mm-hmm. that, that insecurity uh, of not having a, a sense of belonging, of having to rely on yourself for that sense of belonging. We're social creatures, aren't we? So we want to constantly find someone to relate with um and by creating the sense of belonging we automatically create the other and we don't want to be the other in 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 that scenario yeah it it really depends on on that type of person i'd I'd love to say you know just just celebrate Mm -hmm. yourself but there's so much insecurity that that comes with being an outsider um especially if you can't see the benefits if the initial idea of being the outsider means that you're ostracized or means that you don't have that um, a confidant or you don't have someone that you can talk to then 
how how do you tell someone no it's okay just enjoy being by yourself it's it's a process of uh first uh, understanding that they are different then moving on to accepting that they can't change the these differences and then learning to love those those differences but i think once you're able to do that once you're able to celebrate the, um that that the notion of, of of being an outsider i think that's when the real strength comes in because you, you then are able to to um see it as a positive in 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 the different forms you mentioned there bradley that having someone to talk to and also having a confidant can be helpful who were the people that you talked to in your experience of being an outsider of not belonging um okay so when we moved to uh the UK we moved to uh Penge in South London um and there weren't really other Zimbabweans there there was a growing Zimbabwean community within uh, North London uh, Luton uh for example so um i then just gravitated to people who looked like me and th- this tended to be more uh, people from uh west african backgrounds or or uh or caribbean backgrounds so i i was trying to then relate to them but even so from a cultural perspective i was still different they were talking about things like plantain they were having arguments between do they call plantain plantain or is it plantain whereas i, I had no dog in the fight i was like what plantain what's that what do we but in order to feel again that sense of belonging i then had to pretend that i spoke like them i um i, I ate the same foods as them but i didn't so even in that sense i had a sense of belonging from a, a, a racial perspective i guess but culturally no one was eating sadza which is one of the, one of the things that we we have in in zimbabwe you know that was our local dish i couldn't t- talk to anyone about sadza because no one else knew that so um i then reverted back towards my own family so my mom and my dad were uh i think my my dad in particular they were two of my of my confidants so we spoke a lot about that that sense of identity and the sense of belonging so my mom's from an indian background my dad is um yeah black african uh background so in zimbabwe uh, when they got together it was uh rhodesia at the time so um a lot of racial uh tensions or a lot of racial inequalities uh, which is also one of the reasons why my folks wanted to move as well because they saw this disparity uh, unfolding and they they wanted to be in an environment where my sister and I could develop our own sense of thought i guess we could develop our own identities without it being linked to a status um because for them when when they got married they were breaking a lot of a lot of boundaries um in zimbabwe you had to stay within your own race and um and even that there was a hierarchy so the hierarchy that my dad had compared to um indians my mom's background was uh, hugely different my dad got a lot of racial abuse from my uh from my mom's family because of that so mm. um yeah basically they were very good people to talk to about the sense of belonging and identity because they they experienced this on so many levels my mom was the only person of a uh, 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 colored uh, background in in her school my my dad was uh, an african guy with an english surname 
So that, again, ostracized him within his community because they saw him as an anglicized version, just purely because of his uh, his background. So, yeah, Annie, there, there are a lot of layers in terms of what our identity was and also how I then became a, a product of that. And I, I think maybe that's that's when my first foray into, into empathy started um, because I had to try and understand other people first. Absolutely, Bradley. And the experiences of your parents and how they shaped you and your own experiences of not belonging. How did this shape what you went on to to study? What were your dreams and hopes and passions for your future whilst you were being educated at school? I think it was just trying to trying to do everything I could as best as I could. So, um, I mean, my mom especially would take us everywhere. I, I played a lot of sport. You know, during, in, during the winter, it was hockey and football. Uh, during the summer, it was cricket uh, and athletics. And my mom gave up a lot of her, <laughs> pretty much all her weekends to, to just chaperone me. So I just did everything so from a sports perspective also because my, my, my family is quite sporty. So... Um, my mom played hockey for Zimbabwe as as a goalkeeper, and then my dad was a professional footballer in Zimbabwe, but doesn't really pay. So he then stopped that to actually earn a real living. Um, but he was, you know, he was a, a marathon runner and all these sort of things. So my sister and I are quite lucky because we've we've got those genetics, and sport has always been a huge thing. So that's kind of where my identity then went into because I I then decided I'm just going to play sport. I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, that broke all boundaries, right? Whether it was culturally, whatever it was. If you were good at sport, it allowed you uh, a status. It allowed you a voice in a team um, and people then engage with you. So I then found, I just really threw myself into it uh, and both my parents were really encouraging. So I I played representative sports um, and I guess from being young i i just thought that sport was going to be a huge part in my professional life um i didn't think i would well i was hoping to be become a professional footballer but i mean i i was playing non-league at 16 um and then went for uh, professional trials at um crystal palace academy i think that was at 17 uh, but my mom said regardless of whether i was going to be going in or not i had to finish my a levels first um before I did anything within professional sport. So, cause she always tells me uh, of a, of a story when I got my A-level results and uh, I went back home she was there and I gave her my, my A-levels. I got two A's and a B. And I said, well, there you go. I hope you're happy. Like <laughs> what kind of ungrateful kid does that? I get really embarrassed every time I, my mom talks about that, but it just kind of reinforced that idea that my mom, she had a plan of, okay, if you want to play sport, fine, but we make sure that we get our academics. Um, and then once I had that, then I could do what I wanted. But, you know, ultimately getting those A-levels allowed me to, to go to a, a university like Loughborough, which is renowned for sport. Um, yes. I didn't even know what I wanted to do at that point. I just knew that I was um, good at sport and I liked words. So I did an undergrad in English and sports science. I thought maybe sports journalism would be a thing. Uh, it would be something that I would uh, then go into. Um, 
I then did a master's in sports science. Uh, again, only because I didn't know what I wanted to do. So <laughs> I thought, let me just, <laughs> rather than being pushed into a, into a field, let me just uh, use this indecision to, to accrue more uh, qualifications. Um, and that gave me a bit more breathing space, I guess, trying to plan what I wanted to do. I then moved back to, to London and was, again, still playing non-league and uh, ended up being given a, a trial, actually, at Charlton, where I was working as a performance analyst, just as an intern. And the manager at the time, Chris Powell, said that he'd sent a scout to come watch one of my games. He was impressed and they'd, they'd like to offer me a, a one-week trial. So I thought, well, okay, I'm, I'm 25 at this point. Um, fine, if you want to offer me a trial, I'm kind of just looking for a job. But if you want to offer me a trial as a player, cool. I, I did that. I had that one-week trial at the end of our season. And then he said, yeah, we'd like to offer you a, a one-year deal as a, a player. So Wonderful. for me, I, my dream of being a professional stopped, I'd say, when I was 21, 22. But to then get that opportunity to, to play uh, professionally at 25, when I talked to a lot of young people who were in the professional game, uh, we run, I run a player care program at uh, Charlton Athletic. I always talk about, the number of young players who stopped playing completely by the time they're 21. So for me to be able to jump in at 25, I was at that point, I was emotionally mature. So I was able to cope with the, the adversity that comes with uh, being a professional footballer. That's amazing, Bradley, that, as you say, you were, <laughs> you were given that opportunity, but also that, in your work with young players now, you're speaking about that emotional maturity to to deal with um, all that comes with that with yeah. the profession. And what are some of the things that are really stand out for you in terms of that emotional maturity to be able to cope with that life? When I when I first had my my uh, trial at eighteen at Crystal Palace, I was not ready. I, I wasn't ready to deal with the the criticism that was uh, ready for every player for every mistake. You know the the competition, um, the lack of collaboration. Because although you're in a team environment, you're you're fighting for your career. You know if you play well, then your position stops someone else playing. So it's in their interest to make sure that you don't play well. So, you know, it, it's, it's the most cutthroat environment, but it has to be. I mean, professional sport is, by its definition, survival of the fittest, isn't it? It is, I think, you know, the, the ultimate meritocracy. And for you to survive within that, you really have to keep progressing, keep moving forward. And sometimes it means um, you've got to be selfish. So... I couldn't deal with that at 18. You know, I was still going in, still being grateful. Um, I guess even at 25, I went in for my first year. I was still being grateful to the manager uh, for giving me a contract. But after a while, I had to start demonstrating that I was worthy of playing. You know, I, I added value. And because of that, I was pr providing them also with, uh, with a service that I should be proud of and... So, yeah, it was moving away from that idea of being grateful and taking up the opportunity. Um, but that came from 
a lot of experience. It, it came from, like I say, being older and knowing yes. the world uh, a bit, a bit more than uh, than an eighteen-year-old version of myself. Amazing. And how long were you playing at Charlton? So I went to Charlton at twenty-five. Um, I was I was one of um, nineteen new signings. So. Annie, if you can imagine, so I, I've just been signed for this huge club and on the first signing, I've, I've been doing uh, performance analysis on the players who are there and I, I have a rough idea of where I could fit, um, but also I'm thinking this is going to be tough. Anyway, as, this, as the summer carries on, we're signing more and more and more players and the quality of players that we're signing, uh, th- their CVs, are totally unmatched compared to mine. I mean, you've got league appearances, um, Premier League interest, all these sort of things. And I'm coming from non-league. Um, some players are being bought, so they've got huge transfer fees on them. Uh, <laughs> so my my summer went from oh, I could play a couple of games to to thinking oh, actually, I don't I don't know if I'm even gonna make the the travelling squad for pre-season tour because we've got such a, a big squad. Uh, so that first year was a really, really uh, eye-opening experience, but humbling, yet also uh, got me to really focus on myself. Um, and I got another two years as a result Great. of that, another two-year deal. So I was there for three years. I then went to uh, Leighton Orient um, for two years. And then uh, Stevenage, uh, I was on loan there towards the end of my, my time at uh, Leighton Orient. Well, while I was at Charlton, uh, sort of going off slightly here, but while I was at Charlton, I realised I was going to fall out of football pretty quickly uh, because it's so insecure. I would fall out of it before I was ready. So I thought, let me prepare um, my undergrad and, and a master's things. While they gave me an academic background, they weren't necessarily applicable. So I wanted to go into human rights law. Um, so I went to law school for four years in the um, part time, um, and the idea was, yeah, just to make a seamless transition from professional sport into <laughs> <laughs> into working uh, at, a, at a law firm, which kind of worked in a way, uh, because when I then had an opportunity to go into to a law firm, I decided to take that up rather than um, traveling further. Um, to another contract so I felt like I made the right choice at the time but then even within law I then realized that just because I've, I've invested four years of time and my money into doing this this change of course maybe it wasn't the vocation that I, I was hoping so uh, again feeling like an outsider uh, of being in the law firm being in the um, the the, uh, the canteen of the law firm looking around, seeing other lawyers and paralegals and thinking, I've worked really hard to get here, but I don't think this is where I want to be. So then after a year, I, I left there and, and started up a sporting way where I run emotional well-being programs in uh, schools and youth centres and things like that. So much in your answer is about your um, becoming yourself, thinking about uh, what you really wanted to do and looking ahead I have a real sense of you looking ahead as to your future and knowing yourself well enough um, to uh, know when something wasn't right for you 
uh, I realized quite early on that I, I tended to, to learn a lot from making mistakes. I invariably, yeah, when I was younger, I would make a choice then realize that it was the wrong thing, then have to decide, well, am I going to be, uh, am, am I going to be quite dogmatic and carry this through? Or am I going to be humble and admit that I made the wrong decision and then stop and then try a different path? And it took a long, long time to, to try and just learn from that and, and be okay with being humble about getting it wrong and accepting that that first choice I made wasn't that wasn't the, the the correct one, but I hopefully my ability to to risk assess is stronger, um, so I can make less errors. But you know, if I do make mistakes, that's that's fine as long as I can learn from them, which is something I try and guide people on. The mistakes are one thing; it's whether we hold a hat, we we're accountable, and then we learn from that. If we're yes. able to do that, then I think it's it's okay to make mistakes and to learn from them and it this leads me into asking you about the sporting way which you went on to form having uh, as you just said left the the law firm where you had the experience of looking around and a sense of not belonging yeah. there nobody looking like you and or quite getting you it would be great Bradley to hear more about the sporting way especially for for listeners who will be interested to know what is the sporting way and what does it do so sporting way initially started off as a way for me to to mentor but then I didn't just want to mentor I wanted to actually provide a bit more substantive value to what, what I was doing so you know uh, I then started doing a lot more research on emotional well-being and mental health and uh, and I've done some training in that and I then created uh, emotional well-being programs um, which I started running in schools and, and, and youth clubs and different things from you know in dealing with with different types of behaviors but uh, in, in alternative provisions it uh, focuses more on um coping mechanisms so looking at anxiety having to deal with uh, anger um, building social skills and the idea is using sport and play as a way to engage with children and young people and then once you have that engagement then developing social and personal skills that will give the yeah, children and young people a better idea of how that could help them. You know, I, I certainly try and stay clear from the use of uh, empowerment because I think there's a bit of a slight patronizing thing that comes through that. But it's it's more just trying to to be a, a better example and help people. Um, so I guess th that's maybe where the collaborative thinking also comes in because, uh, you know, I'm not saying you, you should do exactly what I do because I understand that I've had a huge privilege um, from a, a, a personal perspective you know, my, my family background as, as well um, has helped me, has given me that security, that grounding. Um, so, so I know everyone's lives um, and backgrounds are different, but if we can offer mm -hmm. um, a way to educate, then certainly I use, like I say, sport and play as, as one of those ways. And, and my, my coaches who now run sessions uh, alongside me or, or uh, separately, that's one of the principles of what we do, you know, is to be the leader that we want others to, to kind of follow on. Because if we haven't got that, if we don't exemplify that, kids will and young people will see straight through that. 
Absolutely, Bradley. I'm I know that we're not able to see each other, but I am <laughs> smiling wholeheartedly. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> and as we draw uh, our conversation to a close, Bradley, I wanted to ask you about oh, yes. um, the dripping pan, which may be known to some listeners, but a lot of listeners will have no idea uh, what we're talking about. Uh, they're missing out. They're missing out, honestly. <laughs> um, so I, I've always said that I don't, uh, if I'm going to play non-league, uh, play part-time football, I want it to be about two things, convenience and, uh, and enjoyment. Um, because football at, at this point in my life really is just about continuing a love, um, but it has to fit within the work that I'm doing. Um, that then was thrown a real curveball when uh, Lewis sounded their, their interest, well, more so because our manager um, then moved to Lewis and I liked the way he, he, he plays and he said, uh, would I be interested in, in going to Lewis? And I thought, well, it's very far. It's very unlikely that I'll go. I spoke to the people there and I, I don't know how, but we ended up saying, well, look, if, if you can kind of tie in with the community work that I'm doing, then I'll, I'll be more interested. Uh, before I knew it, I was given a, uh, a plot of land. I say given a plot of land. I was allowed to use a corner of the, the ground um, which is actually quite a, a good um, space to set up a community garden. I'd already helped set up one in Lewisham where I live. So I was quite keen to do that uh, at the football club. Firstly, because I don't think any other clubs at our level or higher actually have a uh, community garden within the stadium. Um, but also it gave me more of a sense of purpose. So if I was going to be at a club, I would do more than just play. You know, I need to, to try and immerse myself in the community, which is a lot more difficult to do when, you, when you're an hour, an hour and a half uh, away from it. But yeah, I've now coming up to about, what's it, 10 months or so I've been there. And this season, um, alongside the help of a lot of volunteers and uh, Michael Kennard, who runs Compost Club in Lewis, uh, we've established the um, the garden and we've now started growing things and hopefully very soon the idea is to really grow the community garden to, to bring in more people who have no interest in, in football but have an interest in food and growing and trying to merge and trying to work with different demographics within the community to again in, increase the sense of belonging. So like I say, whilst not everyone may like gardening or not everyone may like football, there's still that mutual connection that they have based on that community garden. Um, and yeah, yeah. So that, that was, that was a thinking. I think the the dripping pan is quite a unique place in general anyway. And Lewis, the, the football club, I didn't think I would be as into, as into it from an emotional perspective. Uh, as I as I am I emotionally invested, I guess, in a non-league club. You know, I I, I don't really need to be, uh, but yeah, the, I think the way they, they they go about things has drawn me closer to them. It's great that you are Bradley for the community and uh, for listeners who don't know. Lewis Football Club is wholly owned uh, by 
it, its yeah. members. It's a not-for-profit football club. Um, as we come to the end of our conversation, Bradley, what three things would you encourage leaders to pay attention to in their communities, in their organisations? What three things? Um I, th- I certainly think communication is a huge thing. Communication of, diff- uh, of different voices um, just stops any group think, group thinking, and, and so ensuring that there's constantly a diverse uh, opinion or that there are diverse voices, um, especially the ones who you never really hear from. Uh, that could be either due to status within the, the organization or whatever. Um, openness I, I guess allowing people to make mistakes and, and, and not feel judged because that, that that can maybe stifle someone wanting to admit that they've made a mistake um and empathy um yeah very much empathy trying to understand other people uh other people's motives thank you bradley three great things to pay attention to Um, Thank you so much for being in conversation today, Bradley. To find out more about Bradley and about the sporting way and how they might be able to support work in your community, school or college, or how you could partner and support their work, do go to the website, The Sporting Way, or contact Bradley via email on bradley at sportingway.co.uk or give him a call on 07540 To listen to more Leaders in Conversation, do go to my website, annietownend.com. If you would like to be a guest on Leaders in Conversation, please contact me via email on annie at annietownend.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for listening and thank you very much, Bradley. No, thanks so much, Annie. It's been a real pleasure. (laughs) Thank you.